This is the Bama Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today we watch as our Rabbi Jesus brings the kingdom to the brokenness of the world around him and see the surprising responses of those who encounter it. Absolutely. Gotten all done with the Sermon on the Mount. We had to devote some attention to that. I feel like we should review the Gospel of Matthew. Get back to where we were at. I'm, I would actually like to make a request. All right. I'm feeling like we've been in this Matthew business for some time now. Yes, we have. And I'm feeling a little lost uh, I don't, I don't know. How do you, how does that phrase work? You lose the forest for the trees. For the trees. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm i I'm never sure which one is like the part that I'm seeing <laughs> and which is the, the trees for the forest. I don't know. Yeah. Anyway. I understand. We're, we're talking about this grand narrative of yeah. the scriptures and yeah. I feel like I've kind of lost perspective on it. Ooh. So can we zoom out? You're, you're requesting a full review. Full review from the beginning. Man, I used to do this every time I taught a class and now I haven't done it for a long time. So we're going to see if I got, if, we, if, if I still got the magic. I better. I'm the guy in charge of this. All right, so we're going to go back to the beginning. We start with a section we call the preface, Genesis. People right now are going, no, you're not going to do this. We are, in fact, Baymont listeners. Buckle up. We got we to gotta keep perspective. We got to keep perspective. Starts with a section in Genesis called the preface, chapters 1 through 11. We encounter that creation is good, and there's an invitation to trust the story, and we find a bunch of people that don't. The story ends in tragedy. That leads us to the introduction where we get introduced to the family of God. Genesis 12 through 50, the rest of the book of Genesis, people like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and these are people that demonstrate that although they're not perfect, they can, in fact, trust God. And so that leads us into the book of Exodus. It's really where the narrative begins. We call the narrative uh, the tale of two kingdoms, empire versus shalom. And we uh, we get introduced to this narrative with a bunch of people that are in exile, in slavery, in Exodus. God comes and rescues them in the Passover, uh, leads them to Mount Sinai where there's a wedding. whole rest of the book of Exodus is going to be about the tabernacle. Um, that tabernacle is important because God said right before the tabernacle, God said, if you will say yes to my commandments, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And so this tabernacle is in one respect where those priests work because God gave them a physical place to work and a place where they could actually learn the lessons of priesthood. It's important because it's a honeymoon suite in the marriage metaphor. And it's important because, um, uh, uh, as a literary tool, it was a retelling of Genesis 1 through 3. And so uh, all that stuff is important. But we go back to this call of priesthood, and because that's going to lead us into the book of Leviticus. Leviticus is all about priesthood. We have a section on atonement. We have a section on uh, uh, priesthood, a priest sandwich, we said, with uh, a whole bunch of discussions about how to live, eating kosher and, and farming your fields and wearing particular kind of clothing, because we are supposed to be priests, just like there are physical priests, we are supposed to be living, breathing metaphors of priesthood, uh, walking priests on another level. After that, we are told about how to party. We're told about taking care of the oppressed uh, in the book of Leviticus. And then we jump into the book of Numbers, which is all about a desert honeymoon, leads us to the book of Deuteronomy, which is a call to remember where we've come from. All of that was a, a setup. Torah was about... Um, God looking for partners, we said. All of the books of Moses was about partnership. We summed it up in that one word, about God finding a partner, choosing a partner, defining the partnership, um, inviting them to experience the partnership, and then asking them to remember it all. And then God takes his people and he plants them at the crossroads of the earth um, in the book of Joshua. And then uh, he invites them... uh, He invites them at the crosses of the earth to live out this kingdom, but they get stuck in this redemption cycle, book of Judges. And this redemption cycle, it keeps circling around to God's patience. And I discover God's patience Uh, because the people are 
struggling to figure out what it means to walk this path. In the meantime, we have the book of Ruth, by the way. book of Ruth kind of zooms in on this love story about a Moabitess, and it shows that there are people in the midst of a whole bunch of people that are struggling to figure out what it looks like. There are people that do actually remember what it looks like, and this sends us into a section of history. We actually have a bunch of books. We have First and Second Samuel, First and Kings, and First and Chronicles. Um, two different stories. Story A, from Israel's perspective, is Samuel and Kings. Story B, from Judah's perspective, is Chronicles. And this section of history talks about the the kings. Uh, it starts with Saul and then David and then Solomon. Saul was a donkey herder from Benjamin. David was a shepherd from Judah. And Solomon had this lust for empire. After Solomon, the kingdom splits. And we just kind of devolve into this story about mistrusting what God's up to, losing the plot, losing the mission, building all of our own empires. And in the midst of that, God, before we race ahead to the prophets, we have to pause and we have to remember that there are some tools. Um, this is such a good exercise, by the way. Fantastic. Um, Psalms, we were told there are songs because I, I need, if I'm going to make it, if I'm going to get stuck in the cycle, I'm going to need songs. I'm going to need uh, wise sayings that are generally true, book of Proverbs. I'm going to need um, meaning and purpose, book of Ecclesiastes. I'm going to need, uh, I'm going to need um, intimacy, dode, relationship, and yeah, songs of songs. And uh, that's how we're going to make it. In the midst of all of this chaos, in the mix of all this brokenness, in the midst of losing the plot, God gives us tools to keep us together. And then out of that, we, we enter the prophets. We have all these sections of prophets. We have pre, uh, pre-Assyrian prophets. We have Assyrian prophets. We have Babylonian prophets. We have exilic prophets. We have um, uh, uh, remnant prophets. And that's going to take us through the whole rest of the Hebrew scriptures. The uh, pre-Assyrian prophets. Boy, this is going to get tricky. All of a sudden, good review. Uh, I have um, Amos and I have uh, Hosea. Both to the Assyrian or both uh, Israel prophets the, to the northern country of Israel, Um, obviously uh, Hosea being the prostitute image and then Amos being the image of a plumb line or ripe fruit. And then to the, to Judah, we had um, first Isaiah and we also had, um, who we had, um, uh, why am I, we had Micah. Micah was about the judge and first Isaiah about the image of vineyard, which pushes us into Assyrian. I'm getting nervous here. Assyrian prophets. We had Jonah and Nahum, kind of two sides of the Assyrian coin to Israel. Jonah was about potential, but Nahum was about deen, which is the Hebrew word for retributive justice. And then um, uh, and then we had the two to Judah, which should include Zephaniah, and it should include second Isaiah. Uh, uh, Zephaniah would be the Hebrew word shuvah, which meant to return or repent. And second Isaiah would be all about woes. It's a really depressing section, long section of Isaiah, leading us to the Babylonian prophets where you had Jeremiah, uh, the weeping prophet, followed by Lamentations, which was an alphabetic, uh, chiastic acrostic with lament and hope at its center, the treasure buried in the center. And then we had three smaller prophets, voices in the Babylonian period. We had Habakkuk, we had Ovaja, and we had Joel. Habakkuk being about the watchtower, uh, Ovaja being uh, the message to Petra and the people of Edom. And then we had, um, uh, what did I say? I said Joel, which was the locust plague, leading us to the exilic prophets, the prophets that are sent to God's people now that everybody has been conquered and they're all sitting in ex- exile. We have have Ezekiel and Daniel. Ezekiel is about strength. Ye- Yezak, Yezakiel. And then Daniel is, uh, is about the son of man. And then we also had Job that we threw in there, which is about perspective, this drama about perspective. And we had third Isaiah, which we said was about the servant, the servant discourse. Um, 
leading us to the last section. I think we're going to make it. Uh, uh, we had six voices. I say that now, all of a sudden I got really nervous because I know I have six. We have uh, Esther on one hand, which is all about the story of Purim. And then we have uh, two books about uh, a joined volume about passionate leadership, Ezra, Nehemiah. Ezra, who was that shepherd, and Nehemiah, who was that passionate prophet. And then out of that, we're going to have uh, three prophetic voices, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. We did it. Um, Haggai being the message to build, Zechariah being apocalyptic literature, and we have Malachi who has a Q&A discourse. And this, of course, is going to lead us into that section of the silent years because God's people ended up in exile because they lost the plot of the story. They didn't trust the story. They didn't remember what they uh, with the fam, the DNA, their spiritual DNA going back to Abraham, that hospitality, that radical commitment to trust in his story, the forgiveness of Joseph, like all of that stuff, they, they lost all of that and had to get taken back to Egypt in essence. Only this time it won't be Egypt, it will be Babylon. They get taken to Babylon. And in that place, they build synagogues. They get recommitted to the text. Um, and during that same time, Greece shows up on the scene. It's going to become Rome. And it's going to shake up the imperial world quite a bit. And the Jews are going to have to figure out in this new world where they have reclaimed a commitment and a devotion to the text, uh, what's going to happen in this new world, um, uh, this new Greco-Roman world. And so you've got different responses. You've got, uh, um, you have the, uh, the Sadducees, which basically are the corrupt priesthood, I believe was where we started. And we said they saw Rome coming and they were already corrupt and they had a, a kind of a mob mafia, uh, seven family ring uh, of people that were running the show. Uh, we talked about Herodians, which basically would say, yeah, I'm, I'm all for Greco-Roman world. Like I can love God and I can have theater. I can love God and I can have plumbing. I can love God and I can do it all. And we talked about the the struggle of compromise there. We talked about the Essenes who saw the corruption of the temple system in the Sadducees and said, this is so corrupt that God can't even work in this anymore. So we're going to go out into the desert and we're going to prepare the way at places like Qumran. We talked about them. The problem was, is they separated themselves from the entire discussion. Uh, we talked about the two groups called the Hasidim, which went up north to the Galilee, Pharisees and the Zealots. And we talked about um, both of them having this unbelievable zeal and devotion to walk the path out. Uh, they were kind of seen as charismatic fringe fanatics by those people, those Judeans in the South. And so they went up, the zealots just thought they were going to overthrow Rome with the sword. They were literally going to lead a physical revolt and kill the Romans. And the Pharisees said, well, let God deal with the Romans. Um, we're just going to uh, walk out that same zeal and devotion with an absolute commitment to obedience. And from there, that's where Jesus enters this whole big mess of five competing worldviews, all kinds of different ways. And we said that Jesus shows up, he calls disciples, he calls disciples from all these different worldviews. And we're told about these stories. We're told about gospels. We said a gospel was a pronouncement of a new king and a new kingdom. We have four of them in our Bible. Greco-Romans had all kinds of gospels, many, 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 many gospels. We have four versions in our Bible. We have the gospel of Matthew, which we said was about the mumser. We have the gospel of Mark, which is a Roman gospel written to a Roman audience. We have the Gospel of Luke, which we suggested was an ordered um, uh, gospel, maybe a parasha companion reading following the lead of M.D. Goulder from Harvard. And then we, uh, we talked about John, which was a grafted, he was a gospel to a grafted church, a Jew and Gentile church in the middle of Asia, bringing its, his own unique Asia-flavored um, gospel to a, a unique audience.
That's what we've been doing. Has been walking through Matthew. How is that for a review, Brent Billings? That was that was pretty good. The whirlwind only took us twelve minutes. Not so bad. So real quick, let's let's just do the short review to yes. condense that all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we have Torah, which yes. was about partnership. partnership. Yeah. Then we had the mm, history. Yes, history. Yep. Which was about the cycle that the, yeah. God's people went through. Uh huh. Um, God's redemption cycle and His patience. Yes. Then we had prophets. Almost. Mm, tools. 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 Which, which we was said was wisdom. Wisdom. Love it. Uh, then we had the prophets. Yes. Which was, what did we say about that? Well, we said it was warning. Uh, warning, woes. woes, and hope. And hope. You got it. Then we had the rem, yeah, remnant. Yeah. The saying. remnant, which was learning, returning, and yearning. Let's see here. It was, how did we how did we order it this last time? We need to get this right in session oh, two. Let's see. We had them returning, yearning, and then learning. Oh, That's what we did in I this most completely recent. Yeah, you up. had an old version, which I've done that to you. <laughs> well... Is that how we had it before? Hang on. In our session three intro, right. I have it returning, yearning, learning. All right. So, Wonderful. Love it. And then you left off uh, Silent Years? So Silent Years was Hellenism, uh-huh. the, yep. the advent of uh-huh. Hellenism. Uh-huh. And now here we are in the Gospels. Here we are in the Gospels. Yep. You are got we, it. Are we going to give away our summary word for all the Gospels? Well, all the Gospels summary words is going to be Jesus. Okay. Jesus. Seems, seems pretty straightforward. Rabbi Jesus. <laughs> I don't know we might we might dress it up a little bit, but it, we we don't want to be like flippant in our Jesus, but it should just be about Jesus. Like we should see nothing but Jesus. All the setup was to get us to Jesus. All of our study is to get us to Jesus. Understanding the scriptures is to get us to Jesus. Notice I'm not saying all the scriptures point towards Jesus because that's not the point. Jesus is the scriptures. Like the scriptures don't point to Jesus. Jesus is the scriptures. I have in my notes from a past Bema session, uh, or rather a Bema Ooh. cycle. Okay, call me uh, back. You said the story in flesh. The story. Ooh, I like that. Yeah, <laughs> man, I came up with some good stuff back then. Yeah, story. There we go. That'll be our summary. The story in. That's exactly what I was just talking about. Man, I'm amazed by my own brilliance all of a sudden. This is fantastic. All right. Story in flesh. It's almost like you've been talking about the same thing for a decade or more. I know. Oh, man, I love it. I love it. I wonder if Jesus ever had those moments where Peter was like, actually, back in Bethsaida, you said. I wonder if Jesus was like, oh, yeah, those were good days. I'll say it that way. Uh, Probably not. But. I mean, it did, uh, the scriptures do say, you know, in every way he got to experience what it was like. That's right. So, you yeah. know, maybe you did have one of those moments. That's right. Just one. That's right. Just, Just one. one. What a fun episode this. All right, let's dig in here. So we have been talking about Mumser in Matthew, and we haven't in the Sermon on the Mount been calling a lot of attention to that, but I want to do that now. Because we said that Matthew's agenda was mumser. I mean, we started in the genealogy and we pointed out all the mumsers. And I'm not talking literal mumsers. Like I've pointed out before, I'm using that word very poetically, very loosely. The word technically means illegitimate child, a bastard child from an illegitimate Torah marriage, um, or according to the Torah, an illegitimate marriage, what I meant to say with that. Um, and, and so I'm, I'm using the word poetically, but the the genealogy full of mumsers, the birth narratives full of mumsers. Um, Jesus starts his ministry and crowds are coming. Do you remember where all the crowds are coming from, Brent? All over the region. All over Judea and across the Jordan and the Decapolis and the Galilee and like all over because this this gospel is about the inclusivity of this kingdom. Like everybody is being invited, which makes sense, by the way, that the Sermon on the Mount is going to be all about transforming my heart and loving people. 
Like the whole thing's going to be about people. Because if this kingdom is about inclusivity, what I immediately have to deal with was how in the world am I going to get those people in? Because those people are nasty, dirty, unclean, pagan, sinners, oppressors. How are they invited to the table? And so Jesus spent his time talking about the Beatitudes, talking about mercy, talking about forgiveness, talking about loving your enemies, talking about not judging other people, talking about how hard of a road this is going to be to walk. It all fits because if you're going to believe in the gospel of a mumser, this is going to be hard work. I hope we've said that a few times because that's one of the themes of Matthew is the cost of following Jesus. It was a theme two or three times in the Sermon on the Mount. It's going to be a theme in our teaching today. It, it This is not easy. I, I just get so disturbed when Christians read the gospels and they read the teachings of Jesus and we're not provoked. We're not disturbed by them. Because they're unbelievably provocative. I think we hear these stories and we're like, well, I'm welcome. But then we forget to apply that to, like, this message is for all the people across the Jordan. Like, who are our Decapolis folks? The gospel is, like, in this gospel, they're showing up and Jesus is healing them. And Jesus, anyway, I'm ranting now, but go ahead, Brent, lead us into our next few verses. All right, chapter 8. When Jesus came down from the mountainside, so this is right on the tail of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus yep. finished his teaching. He's on the mountain. Great point, by the way. What does what he, if he's a rabbi, what are we going to expect? He just spent this whole time, three chapters worth of teaching. What do we now expect in a Jewish world if we're his Talmudim? And he's walking down off the mountain. What do we expect to be coming? We're going to apply what we just talked about. Exactly. Whatever he just talked about, I better see it in the next encounter. All right, go ahead. So when Jesus came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. Uh, they were already there. They were gathering. They were following up on the mountain. They're gathering around him as he's teaching his disciples. Large crowds followed him. A man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately he was cleansed of his leprosy. Then Jesus said to him, see that you don't tell anyone. But go, show yourself to the priest, and offer, offer the gift Moses commanded as a testimony to them. All right, so just right off the bat, what, what few things did we pick up, hopefully, in session one? What do you know about lepers, Brent, and leprosy? Like, what, what's, what just happened? He just comes down the mountain, and a leper comes up, and we're like, okay, cool, a leper. Yeah, that's not good. Okay, tell me why. Well, lepers are supposed to be in, you know, some isolated place. Yeah, horribly unclean. So they don't unclean. make someone else unclean. Right. And what was this... What do you suppose, this isn't in the book of Leviticus, Leviticus never commanded the stigma, but what do you suppose the stigma is after you've walked with this Torah for so long and you have people that are unclean, what is the public, the popular stigma that shows up about surrounding this situation? Lepers. How do we feel about them? I mean, being unclean is pretty inconvenient, so right. we don't want to be around anything that will make us unclean if we right. don't have to. Absolutely. So we push them to the fringes. They are a very practical mumser, using that word still loosely and poetically. They're, they're a practical outsider. They're a practical outcast because they don't get to come near me because I want to be able to worship God. I want to be able to follow God. Now, based on what Jesus just spent, remember, Jesus just spent a whole chapter talking about rules out of Torah and how we're supposed to apply them. Things like murder, adultery, divorce, taking oaths. And Jesus always said, yes, the rule exists. But what was Jesus' point consistently, Brent? The rule is about what? The condition of your heart. The condition of your heart and particularly how that heart applies to? Other people. Other people. So is there a rule about leprosy? Uh, not strictly, right? 
Well, is there a rule in Leviticus about leprosy? Let me rephrase that question. Well, just the fact that it's it makes you unclean. Absolutely. Whatever. Like there's a really big chapter about what you can and can't do as a leper. And if you touch a leper, like all kinds of like uncleanliness that follows. And yet Jesus goes, the, but the law, the law wasn't given to keep you away from people. The law wasn't given so you don't love lepers, so you don't touch lepers. The law just tells you what to do if you touch a leper. And so what does Jesus or do? perhaps when... When you touch a leper, ooh, I like that. Much better choice of words. I think that's what the kingdom, this kingdom that Jesus is talking about. Uh, Jesus reaches out. What does it say? Reaches out and what? Uh, it says Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. Ooh, he just touches him. Like, this is what this kingdom look like. looks like, Jesus says. Now, what I love about that is that now means, like, we're not told in the next verse. You haven't read it yet. But we're not told in the next verse. And some gospels were told whenever Jesus hangs out with lepers... We're then told that he, like six days later, he does something. He just dealt with a leper or some other form of uncleanliness. And we're told that six days later, he goes into the temple. Why six days later, Brent? Because that's the waiting period after right. being unclean. Like Jesus is willing to be unclean. And I always hear people go, oh, no, Jesus wasn't unclean. He was without sin. Uncleanliness and sin are not the same thing. Not in Leviticus, not in Torah. It was very popular to be like, oh, you're unclean. Ooh, get away from me. But uncleanliness was not. My wife actually just gave me a hard time about this because I said in a podcast recently, maybe some other women caught this, that my wife, when she's unclean, I apparently in a podcast, I use the word, she's dirty. That is completely incorrect. And she got me on it. She called me out on it. That that's not how you apply Torah in a Jesus world. And so for all those ladies that were listening, if you caught that, it was a passing comment I made to make another point. But to my wife, who listens to my podcast, I'm sorry. And that was incorrect, theologically incorrect, because Jesus, being unclean doesn't make you dirty. Being unclean doesn't make you sinful. Everybody spends time being unclean. It's a role that you play in the community. A woman is unclean every month during her menstrual period. Is her menstrual period sinful, Brent? I know there's a whole lot of things we don't know about here, so we're going to tread lightly, but... Uh, I would sure think not. I would hope not, (laughs) right? It's not a sin just to be a woman, to biologically be a woman. It's just that those women have an opportunity uh, to be the pitcher. There's all kinds of things in Torah that make you unclean. Smashing a bug makes you unclean. Um, Masturbation makes you unclean. Uh, All kinds of things make you unclean in Torah. And everybody would at different points have been unclean for lots of different reasons. So everybody takes a turn being unclean. Uncleanliness doesn't necessarily equate to sinfulness. Sometimes it can. Many times it does not. So Jesus would have spent time being unclean. Every time Jesus wants to interact with a leper, he's not breaking Leviticus. He's not breaking a single mosaic command. He breaks oral tradition in the gospels. Jesus never breaks the commands of Torah. He always fulfills them. And so he says, I'm willing to be unclean for six days in order to touch this leper because touching this leper is more important than my convenience. Good stuff. uh, So the leper says, or the man with leprosy, I guess I should say, uh, because he's not defined by his leprosy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, he Ooh, says, "Lord, point. <laughs> <laughs> he says, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean." Jesus reaches out and touches him. I am willing. Be clean. Immediately, he was cleansed. So, uh, when it says clean or cleansed in those situations, is it talking about uh, being cleansed of the condition of leprosy, or is it talking about the Levitical? clean versus unclean idea. Wonderful question. Or both, I guess. Yeah, and here's a great place to look at it, because he is cleansed of his leprosy. Zarachat probably is the word that we would choose to use here in the Hebrew. 
depending on the word, tells you what kind of leprosy we're dealing with here. Uh, severe acne can be leprosy in Levitical code. Um, so it all depends on what word is, would be used here in the Hebrew. But he's cleansed of his condition, but notice Jesus's next words. What does he say to him? Go, uh, go show yourself to the... Go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Okay, so notice Jesus is adhering to the Levitical code. Even, and I think this is would get John the Baptist's ire up, because John the Baptist is like rejecting the temple system, and Jesus is affirming it. This is a corrupt temple system that he's sending this leper to, completely corrupt, and yet he's saying, that's what Leviticus tells you to do, so go worship God by following Torah. Notice Jesus is adhering to the Levitical code the whole way through. So his leprosy is now gone, but he still has to honor the commands of God by going to that temple, going to that system, getting the okay, getting the clearing of the priests, and now he can go back to his. And there will be other rules he has to follow, but he can now go back to life within and realize he was outside the community. As somebody with leprosy, he would have been on the fringes, not in synagogue, not in worship service, not at the table eating with brothers and sisters. He's an outsider, and Jesus just made him an insider. So I'm a little unsure where I'm getting this information from, but I know I've heard talk about uh, a leper colony or like a uh-huh. specific town or whatever where lepers lived. Right. Where does that come from? Well, is it, that just it comes from other cultures, cultures like uh, or... Mother Teresa was in Calcutta okay. uh, in a leper colony. That's where she lived and worked. Um, so it's a modern thing as well as a biblical thing, but also is true in the biblical world because the book of Numbers says to take the lepers and have them and, and most believe this was for practical infection purposes. We're going to quarantine them. You're going to put them outside the village in their own location. When Jesus's day rolls around, there's a huge discussion about this. Not all scholars agree. But uh, Bethany, we say, later in the gospel, we're going to be told about Lazarus. Lazarus was a leper, and he lived with his two sisters, Mary and Martha. They live in Bethany. Now, there's a huge discussion about whether it's Bethany or Betania, but if it's Bethani, that would be House of Misery. We don't have a whole lot of scholarship to back this up archaeologically, but most of the theories say that I've bumped into Bethany could have been a leper colony, Jerusalem's leper colony, one of probably maybe a few, and the lepers would have went and lived in Bethany, and then the people that are going to give, notice Mary and Martha basically give their life to go take care of their brother because they're not going to be unclean. They can't go into Jerusalem and not if they live with their brother every day. So they've basically said, I'm going to be here to take care of you, my brother, as a leper. And that's what Bethany could have been, is a leper colony. So based on the meaning, uh, place of misery or house of misery, it might not have necessarily been an actual town. It could have just been like a... It probably would have been a town, especially at this point. Like you have enough lepers in a city like Jerusalem, you you can have an established town, especially because a lot of that leprosy isn't going to be coming and going. Some of that leprosy is going to be... A, basically a terminal state, a terminal illness, like it was for Lazarus. So then because of that, my question is, why is this guy here yeah. at the foot of the mountain? Now, he at the foot of this mountain, Aramos Tapos, he can still be well away from the crowds as long as he's doing what Torah says, which is he needs to be letting everyone know. He needs to be shouting, unclean, unclean, so that people know not to touch him. Uh, he could be adhering to all those rules. It's also possible this guy's got a whole bunch of chutzpah. I mean, we're going to read another story later, I think, or maybe we won't. I can't remember. 
which gospel shows up and all of a sudden. Well, if it's in Matthew, we're going to read it. That's I for know, sure. every verse, right? <laughs> but there's a story about a woman with an issue of bleeding that we'll read about. She, with an issue of bleeding, should not be pushing through the crowds, the gospel's going to say. She is unclean. She is way out of line. But she's got a bunch of chutzpah because she believes this guy can heal him. So this leper could have some... He could be a little out of bounds. He could be demonstrating some chutzpah, or it's possible he could be completely in bounds, observing the law exactly as he ought to by letting everyone know. And he's just in, remember, Ramos Tapos was just a certain place outside of town. He could be totally okay. So not enough details to know for sure. We should probably move on. Keep moving. Yep. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. Jesus said to him, shall I come and heal him? Okay, let me just stop you right there. Who do we got? We got a Roman centurion. How Jewish? Pagan? Uh, not Jewish, that's for sure. <laughs> it, it'd be a long stretch to think it's, I guess it wouldn't be totally impossible, but it ain't Jewish. That's a Roman centurion. That is a pagan oppressor. Like, this is the oppressor. There's a, there's a chance he could be the Roman centurion that loved the Jewish people. Like, there's a chance this could be that guy in the Gospels that we read about elsewhere. But this is a pagan. So he is definitely... Not the person that you picture in the painting sitting at the great feast of Abraham. Okay, go ahead. And he's an officer. He's uh, He has right. some authority, some he's power. He's got some clout, in, absolutely. In the Roman world. Yep. Uh, Jesus said to him, shall I come and heal him? The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one go and he goes and that one come and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. Now, notice this guy understands the Jewish, like he realizes, I can't have, if Jesus, who just touched a leper, by the way, I don't know how many days have passed. I don't know if this story is right on the heels of that, but Jesus has, he's, he's willing to make himself unclean, but notice the centurion as well. He is aware enough that he's like, I can't have you come to my house. You enter my house and now you become unclean as a Jewish rabbi. I don't even need that. Like the faith that this guy demonstrates, like he doesn't even think he needs Jesus to come. I understand how authority works. Excellent. Go ahead and keep going. So if a Ramos Tapas is where you think it is, Mm -hmm. how far is that from Capernaum? A 20 minute walk, if that. So, I mean, this very feasibly could be later the same day. All these places like are well within a few hours walk. All these places are in this whole region. So you can get anywhere you need to be. On any day. So it's hard to know how much time yeah. uh, passes. Could be any amount of time, but but maybe as little as half an hour. Absolutely. Basically. Right. Uh, when Jesus heard this, he was amazed and said to those following him, Truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. Okay, what did he just say? <laughs> I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. A heck of a statement. That was a big... That, catch the mumser agenda here. Okay, we had a leper who was an outsider who just got brought in. Now we have a centurion. Go ahead and keep finishing what Jesus says here. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, go, let it be done just as you believed it would. And his servant was healed at that moment. Okay, that is a heavy mumser agenda right there. Both the leper and now at the centurion. And Jesus' words are, to all these God people, all these religious folk, all the people who think they're in, he says, I got to tell you who's going to be at the Feast of Abraham. It's going to be everybody from the East and the West. That's all Gentile talk. 
The east and the west is Gentiles. Remember the directions of the compass. They're all going to come and they're all going to be at the feast. But I'll tell you who's not going to be at the feast. You religious people, because you don't get it. I mean, again, I don't know how we read the gospels and we're not totally disturbed by the things that we read. I just don't think we internalize it enough. We, anyway, enough. I'm rambling. When Jesus came into Peter's house, he saw Peter's mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her. She got up and began to wait on him. When evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to him, and he drove out the spirits with a word and healed all the sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took up our infirmities and bore our diseases. Right now, notice what we talked about all the way back in session two with Isaiah and the suffering servant discourse. When When we read Isaiah 53, which is what Matthew intentionally quotes here and says, in this is fulfilled Isaiah 53, we typically read Isaiah 53 and just immediately think of Jesus on the cross. By his stripes we were healed, he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. And then here it quotes the Septuagint, to take up our infirmities, bore our diseases in another verse. Um, We often think of Isaiah 53 and immediately think the cross. And like I said before, don't want to take away from the cross connection to Isaiah 53. Please notice how Matthew the Jew references the fulfillment of Isaiah 53. He says Isaiah 53 is not fulfilled in Jesus's death, but in Jesus's life, in the way that Jesus is living. I mean, I don't know how tired this guy must be. Touching lepers, talking to centurions, goes into Peter, mother-in-law house, right in the middle of Capernaum, and heals her of her sickness. And now everybody brings out, the crowds just bring them uh, demon-possessed people. I mean... We don't need to get into any stories. Like, I've had my own experiences as a pastor and different things. That's not like easy, light, light-hearted pastoral material. Healing of the sick. What is this thing that Jesus is doing? He is, he is taking on what we read about in Isaiah 53. If we're willing to suffer on behalf of other people, salvation will come. Kingdom will come. But I just wanted to point out as we went through there, I, I don't see Isaiah 53 fulfilled in his death according to the gospel writer, I see it fulfilled in his life in the way that he's living. Apparently, that's how we're supposed to read Isaiah 53, just to go back and make that point again. Uh, this is completely unrelated, but is this our first reference that uh, indicates Peter is married? Uh, in this gospel, yes. And then, yeah, we didn't have any allusions in the list earlier and he was called or necessarily any of those things. You would assume it in there if he's old enough that he's fishing uh, with his brother Andrew. Um, you would assume in their culture, the assumption would be that they're married because he's not in schooling. You wouldn't get married as long as you were in training, Jewish schooling. But as soon as you went back home to apply your father's trade, if you are of age, you would typically be married. So you would expect anybody that's of age to be married, but this is the first reference we actually get directly in. And we know where Peter's house is, right? Well, we, we have what tradition says is, is his house. Uh, you've been with me at a Capernaum, and there's a large Catholic church suspended over the house that it says was Peter's. And it's a pretty good pretty good option. Church tradition is often pretty spot on. Some have argued it's a house about two insulas over from the one that's identified, but the one that's identified is as good of a guess as any. The only reason that they argue for the one a couple houses away is because it says... Uh, in one of the Gospels, it says Jesus went immediately from the synagogue into the house. And some have argued that word suggests that he's stepping out of the synagogue directly into the home. And the one that's identified today is probably three homes away from the synagogue. So 
that's the only theory there, but I would go with the one that is marked today. So either way, we're still in Capernaum. We are in the smack dab right off the synagogue of, of Capernaum. Jesus comes down the mountain. He heals man with leprosy. He walks into Capernaum on his way to Peter's house, takes care of the centurion on the way. Yeah. Now he's in the house. Yeah. And so I we're, would, we're yeah. potentially within 30 minutes of the Sermon on the Mount still. Could be. Although the Jew in me has a problem with that if he touched a leper. Oh, good point. Yeah. I'm going to suggest he probably hung out in the wilderness for... And again, I don't think Matthew is recording this stuff chronologically, but Matthew definitely... De- Matthew is definitely wanting to give you the insinuation that you're getting. Like the way you're hearing the story is the way that Matthew is wanting you to hear it. Like right off the mountain, boom, 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 boom. Um, did it really happen exactly that way within half an hour? The Jew in me is going to say Jesus took six days. Geographically, it's possible. It's possible. Okay. Absolutely. Okay. So moving on. When Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. When a teacher of the law came to him and said, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. Now, we're not told in the next verse what happens to this guy. We don't know if he says yes or no. It would seem from the rest of the gospels, unless this guy is one of the 12, he probably said no. Like, it, the, be careful what you're asking. Like, you want to follow Jesus. Jesus says, no, you don't, you don't actually know what you're asking because there is no home. Like, we have no Hampton Inn and Suites that we're going to go stay at. Like, there, I don't stay here. I got plans. We're going to go about doing things. So if you just want to, like, people, I used to have students when I was more involved in the student ministry on campus. Um, they used to come and talk to me about discipleship. Now, I would love to mentor them and work with them. But in my understanding of discipleship and what I do in my ministry, discipleship was... Okay, you get up in the morning, you have breakfast with me, and you follow me, and you do what I do, and you spend the day with me, and at the end of the day, you hang out with me, and then you do dinner together like we do what Jesus did, which was come follow me. Not to the extent that Jesus did, but we try to get as close to that as we possibly could. And I would have students come up frequently and go, yeah, can I just, can you just disciple me, but only like a couple hours a day? And the answer would be no. Like I can, we can spend a couple hours a day together. But that's not discipleship. So when somebody says, I want to come follow you in this rabbinical world, Jesus says, I don't, that's, that's not what we're doing. Like, if you want to come follow me, you need to give it all. Remember the disciples, they dropped their nets. They came and they, they left it all for the next few years. They didn't know where they were going to go. They didn't know where, what they were going to eat. They didn't know when they would be back. They just knew that they were following the rabbi. Um, and Jesus apparently is able to discern this. Uh, in his response. And one, one more one more response here, and then we'll wrap this thing up. Another disciple said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus told him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Seems harsh. The dead bury their own dead. There's some context here, as there usually is when it seems like Jesus is being yeah. unbelievably unreasonable. Service level reading does not exactly make sense. Yeah. You what do you assume? You don't see a lot of dead people well, yeah. uh, working on the burial plots of the other dead. Right. Speaking of surface level reading, what does it appear on just a surface level reading when you read that, Brent, that the person is asking? What do you assume that this person is saying to Jesus? Uh, let me go and bury my father. Like, he's the father's already dead. Okay. Either the father's already dead and like, just give me a couple of days because I need to go wrap up the funeral. Or possibly my dad is on death's doorstep and I want to be there through that. So let me finish that. And Jesus kind of seems to like blow it off like, well, the dead bury their own dead. Like, come follow me. What is probably being referenced here, we can't say this with absolute certainty, but with pretty good certainty. Like I would give it like a whole 90% certainty here. In the Jewish world, when you died, uh, they would take your body. They would go put it in a tomb. They would... uh, 
we say embalm it, but it's not an embalming process at all. They would cover your body in spices, and the spices are designed to speed up decomposition. We'll probably talk about this some more some other time. But the spices are designed to make your body break down, not to preserve your body. That was the Egyptians. The Egyptians embalmed. We, as Western uh, Greco-Roman Americans, embalm. But the biblical world, they broke the body down on purpose. So that on the one-year anniversary of your death, they visit your tomb, they roll the stone away, they cut all the tendons and the ligaments, all that's left there is a skeleton, they cut the tendons and the ligaments, they gather up all your bones, they put the bones in a box called an ossuary, you can look this up online anywhere, and that ossuary is then put in a hole in the tomb that's designated for your family, a large cave-like opening where you can put 20 different ossuaries of your whole extended family tree. And and that's how that whole thing works. That process was totally immersed in superstition in the Jewish world. And many Jewish superstitions arose around that's how redemption happens. Like if you are not there to bury your father, like if you're not there to go in on the one-year anniversary of his death and put his bones in the ossuary, there was Jewish superstitions that he wouldn't make it in the afterlife. Like he wouldn't be, his body wouldn't be there when they call his name in the Lamb's Book of Life. Like redemption couldn't happen. The resurrection would not be there for him, which we can understand because there is a lot of weird superstition out there about uh, death. Like I will probably get emails after this podcast about, is it okay to cremate? Like we have a lot of weird, like if I cremate, like they're not going to be able to come back. And now the Jew, the Jewish perspective has a whole teaching about cremation, but nevertheless, I'm pretty sure the God who created the body is not going to have a hard time resurrecting because we don't want to run that line of logic all the way out. Well, we're we supposed s- to get new bodies anyway. Exactly. We have some weird superstitions when it comes to uh, all of our fears and insecurities around death. So did they. Do these beliefs hold true in Jewish tradition today? Not so much. Not the same superstitions. Not that I would say they're free of superstitions any more than we are um, in their world, but um, these were more particular of the simple Second Temple period and rabbinic worldviews and that kind of thing like that. So in in this case, when he says, let me go bury my father, it's most likely what he's referring to is he is in that one year window. His father has passed, he has been entombed, and there's going to be a large family to take care of the dad on the one year anniversary of his death. And this guy's saying, I got to be there. Now, whether he believes in the superstition or not, he's saying, can you just let me be there for the one year? And Jesus is like, no, you got better. Life is waiting Death is calling, but life is waiting. Come follow me and be a part of the kingdom and life. Let the dead bury their own dead. So not quite the icky, like, ooh, Jesus is kind of a jerk. Not not quite that tone that we get there. And And I just close out with this thought. Again, we hear this same echo, which is, I mean, this whole section here was titled The Cost of Following Jesus. This call of following Jesus is not light, it's not trivial, it's not insignificant, it's not easy. The call to follow Jesus is counterintuitive, it's going to lead to persecution, it's incredibly difficult, it's always telling you that you're on the outside when you think you're on the inside, and all the people you thought were on the outside are actually on the inside. This whole counterintuitive thing the kingdom is going to do is going to be difficult, it's going to be costly, it's going to be hard. And so, uh, yeah, it's a good place to call it today. There you go. 
Well, that was a jam-packed episode. Sure was. Full review at the beginning. It's, yeah, it's good to remember that the story is good and that Jesus is showing us how to live in that story. Yeah. Yeah, it's good. Good stuff. Um, so, as always, get in the discussion group. Uh, get in touch with us if you have any questions. We're always here to help. Whether you need help starting a discussion group, joining a discussion group, if you have random questions, whether about this episode or not, it doesn't matter. Uh, Marty's on Twitter at Marty Solomon. I'm at EIBCB. And you can find more details about the show at BaymaDiscipleship.com. Thanks for joining us on the Baymaw Podcast. We'll talk to you again soon. <laughs>